From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Filmstream's Executive Director, Deirdre Hodge. I'd love to go into a room of people and I'll say, how many of you have had your life changed watching a movie? In the United States, almost everybody's going to raise their hand. You remember a moment where you were rocked to the core in one way or another watching a movie. And watching a movie in a movie theater with other people, where you can hear a pin drop, or you hear other people laugh, or you can hear someone's breath of the person next to you. That experience is ancient. It's the storytelling again of the communal campfire that we all gather around to hear those stories again and again and again. We talk about the current state of film, taking over Omaha's Art House Theater, and what to expect from film streams under Hodge's vision. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Deirdre Hodge, who has just moved to Omaha and taken on the role of executive director at Film Streams, Omaha's hub of art house cinema, retrospective series, and expanding the city's cultural exposure in all kinds of exciting ways. Today I get to know Hodge as she starts to get to know our city, and she gives a sense of what to expect from Film Streams under her vision. Here is our conversation. Thanks for being on the show, first Thank of all. Thank you for having me. You have an interesting story. I looked into it a little bit, uh, okay. but I want to talk just about movies. Do you remember the first movies that made big impacts on you? Oh, my goodness. So I wanted to go to film school before I went to college, and then that all shifted when I was in my senior year of high school. I worked in a movie theater in my teen years. So I've been in art houses literally since I was 16 years old. I worked at the Avon Movie Theater, which is still a working art house cinema in Stamford, Connecticut. I went from popcorn girl to ticket girl to, you know, going in the booth and looking at, you know, how we were cutting the trailers. So I've loved it for a long time. I I had a boyfriend in high school who was a little bit older than me, and all of his buddies went to film school. Stamford is the first express stop out of New York City. So we'd get on the train when a big film came out. And we'd go into the city to see a film on a proper screen. So that's how much of a film snob I am. I think for me the big one was Raging Bull. And I think it was Raging Bull because uh, Thelma Schumacher being, you know, a female editor was a real draw for me. It was the first time where I saw a film with a different filmic visual and auditorial approach where I realized the story is being told in a different way using film and sound. Mm -hmm. And amplifying the storytelling for me. I mean, I had lots of favorite films before that, but but that, for the filmic reasons, I would say Raging Bull. You, at that point, wanted to be in, like, you wanted to be in the industry of I thought making I wanted to be an editor, yeah. An editor. Like, that's, that's something that it, it takes people a long time, I think, to really think about editing choices, right? Were you aware of that from a young age, of just, like, the conscious, there are people doing this as you watched movies? Yes. So I was in the arts. I was a singer. I was an actor. So, you know, I was in that part of the high school. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those kids. I was an AP student, so I got to graduate early if I wanted to. But what I did instead was I got to go to a local college. And so I would take classes at the local college, and then I had to come back and, like, complete AP English or something my last year. So that really gave me the time to look into it. And I thought I was going to be a film major, and then some other things happened, and I ended up going to acting school instead. What were those things that happened? Well, uh, so there's a man now who – He used to be the president of the DGA, the Directors Guild, um, and he was one of the executive producers on Law & Order. But I knew him as a theater director. His name was Ed Sharon. And um, Ed had won a Tony Award for The Great White Hope on Broadway. Um, He was married to Jane Alexander, the actress. And he ran our uh, our local theater. And I was in this class at the local university, and there was an audition workshop. And I got into that audition workshop, and I was the only kid there that, you know, was in high school. And he was just eviscerating everybody. These people are getting up and doing these monologues, and he's just cruel. And I got up, and I, you know, quivering, and I do my monologue, and he's like, you need to be trained. You should go to school. And it just so happened he was taking over the Boston University program the next year. So he just put me in it. I just went to BU, and I hated BU. I was there for a year. And then I auditioned at Juilliard and at SUNY Purchase, and I became a part of the Purchase Mafia. So I graduated from Purchase and went to school with Edie Falco and Ving Rhames and Stanley Tucci. And yeah, so that was, I basically went thinking, if I can't get into one of these two programs, I'm not going. So what was the monologue you did? (laughs) So you had to do a a modern and a classic. Okay. 
I am not going to remember the modern, but the classic. I was working on the Trojan Women. Oh wow! Okay. And he would he would again. These people are doing Chekhov, and he's like, I don't want that. I want you know, I want verse. And so I like get up and I'm like, I'm working on Ennui's translation of the Trojan Women. You know, is that okay or should I do X? Like because I had a couple of different ones in my back pocket, and I was again, I was like, what seventeen? And um, and he was like, no, that's fine. And so I did my little monologue, and the next thing I knew, I was going to be you and so he saw potential in it yes uh, and then he left that year too so yeah. we both left after a year was it hard for you to switch gears though from wanting to be one of the crafters behind the scenes to being center stage i guess was the new goal right you know it was harder to go back i think what happened was a lot of actors and a lot of i think people that do what we do you're you're a generalist and i was interested in a lot of things and i was very good at a lot of things so i thought well i'll act first and then i'll back into it right it was I was on a series and the producer there looked at me he's like you're a lovely actor but you're just a born producer because I'd be on set and I'd be like why are we shooting this now this makes no sense this we're gonna lose light here I don't understand why you know everybody's melting why every piece of it was what I saw and I honestly I didn't have the drive I didn't have a drive to be a star. And every time I'd meet one of the bigger agents, and I had a very big agent, you know, they would be like, you know, what do you want? I was like, I just want to be respected. And I was better at doing, I was better at pushing other people forward, frankly. Well, you were on Dallas, right? I was. So that must have been extremely exciting. It was very exciting. And that was the producer who yeah. said that to me. Right. He was like, you're just born a producer. <laughs> He's like, that's really what but you it didn't, should be doing. Did it come with a job offer? Like, <laughs> come produce Dallas? No. Well, that I was on the last season. Okay. You know, so that was the very last year of Dallas. And um, it was such a fun, wonderful time. And I learned everything I needed to learn. And I'd done a few shows before that. But that was where I really got to be part of a family. And I was Patrick Duffy's love interest. So he really had his arms around me in terms of taking good care of me and Larry Hagman was still producing at that time, and he was just, it was a lot of fun. Well, and just such a big cultural thing, right, yes. at the time. Just yeah. to be a part of that, it's got to be, you said you wanted to be, like, taken seriously, respected. I mean, just to be on the biggest show has got to get you some of the way But, there, you know, right? that was at the tail end of that time. Like, I remember being on the lot when, you know, the, the Lorimar sign came down and the Sony sign went up. A lot of things change. If you even look at the lighting of the shows at that time, you were shooting on film. You weren't doing a three-camera setup. It was, you know, everything shifted right after that. And that had a lot to do with media ownership and, and things like that, which, as you can see, like, I was, I'm a little bit more of a generalist. I wasn't your typical actor. And, and there was, I mean, I remember Lenny Katzman was the producer and Lenny saying that to me. And I'm like, but I'm in a bikini and I live in L.A. And, you know, I was young mm -hmm. and I didn't see in me yet what he had seen in me. So what was the next step then? You decide you want to get back into behind the scenes. How do you do that? Well, first I got married. Okay. So I had met my husband um, not long after that. And getting married, realized, you know, I want to do some different things. And I started working for some people in the industry. I worked for an attorney who represented a lot of big stars and things like that. And I actually didn't want to take the gig. I wanted to get a producing gig. And he said, what do I have to do to get you to work here? And I said, well, if you'll, every time I have a question about a contract, you'll explain the contract law to me. I'll take the job. And so he did. And, you know, literally, I'd be like, okay, so why, why this? You know, like, what, why are these things in the WGA contract? And I learned a lot. I had a lot of friends who I'd made as an actor who were producers. Um, and they would let me just sit in their office and listen to them make deals. And then this job came about to produce a documentary. And I took it. Were you into documentaries? Was that on your radar? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say I was never not into documentaries. But, okay. you know, documentary at that time was not what documentary is now. Right. I just saw an opportunity. And documentary was and continues to be a great way in for women in the industry because the price point's lower and you can get in and do what you need to do in a way that I think the bar is far higher to climb over for narrative work. So what was the documentary? So it was a documentary. This is a very funny story. There was a program. There was a grant at the American Lung Association. And part of that big grant, I had to administer the entire grant, but part of that grant was to make a film about smoking in Hollywood. And so I knew all these people. And I took this little budget and I made this film. And Sean Penn was in it. And, you know, Rob Reiner was in it. Like, I just called all these people, Christy Turlington. And 
I had a ton of people that said yes to me. And literally all my friends were like, I've been trying to get a hold of these people. And somehow you have gotten them all into this film by the American Lung Association to talk about smoking on camera. It actually was really cool. We, we posited the film instead of being like a wagging finger like you shouldn't smoke. It was, what's your First Amendment right versus your responsibility as a performer? How you use tobacco on camera. And that interested the actors enough and the producers and the directors to talk about it. And so it became really thoughtful. And for me, you know, talking to people like Sean Penn, for example, his father was a blacklisted writer. So when you go and you talk to him about something like this, it's deadly serious to him. And he's probably the most prolific smoker on camera, right, ever. It was a fascinating journey to make that film. And the best part of it, the end of it was, Tom Rothman at the time was running 20th Century Fox. And internally, I found out, he made it mandatory that everybody watch the film. So we were a part of changing and actually, in the end, getting the rating system changed. So when it says rated X for blah, 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 and smoking, it was me. Was that a cause that you were interested in before this? Or did it sort of like it was a discovery through the process? It was a discovery when I realized how many people died from smoking. And then I was like, oh, I get it. We have a job to do. So, I mean, that's interesting. So, I mean, you do that and it has a tangible effect and that's got to be interesting. And it's got to sort of seem like, okay, you can get people, you can open doors. I mean, did did you have like a documentary, a documentarian career in mind at that point then after this? No, not at all. And in fact, the guy I hired to shoot it was really more of an ad guy. He was more of a marketing guy because I wanted a very different take. And so we were we were using an HD camera when nobody else was using an HD camera. You know, it was cut really lickety split because I knew we were supposed to make it for the entertainment industry. It was not meant for the general public. It was meant for the entertainment industry. So I'm like, we have to make something that people will look at. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a talking head or between two ferns, to borrow a phrase, nobody's going to watch this. So it was very slickly put together for 25 cents, if you will. When you're doing that, so you know how to get it to be something that people will watch. You know how to go from sort of that intention of like, we have to make it this way to get the right eyes on it. That seems like that's a lot of the game in trying to become a good producer, right? Is like, what exactly does it take to reach the audience we want? And how do we do that for whatever price point we have? Sure. Yeah. I think there are, I mean, you know, we also got that broadcast. I think it's like the only film paid for by public health funds had actually got a broadcast deal. Wow. Okay. And we broadcast on Discovery. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's a, a great documentary filmmaker named Cynthia Hill who once said, you know, no means I haven't asked the right person. <laughs> I like to think of it that way. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Deirdre Hodge, executive director of Film Streams. So you do that. And then uh, what was next? Well, again, I was doing that with a baby. So I, so was in, I was in pre-production during labor. Um, wow. I remember that distinctly. And then we were in production, and she was already born. We were living in L.A., obviously. And my husband at that point was on a grant to go learn all the non-artistic aspects of running a theater. So he was on this grant, and he was traveling everywhere. And here I have this baby. And the film got picked up by the CDC, and so the CDC was distributing it through their Office of on Smoking and Health, and they hired me to be the conduit to Hollywood. I almost thought of myself as an interpreter. So we would go in and we would deal with the studios and we would talk about guidelines for tobacco, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would take all the CDC wonks and take all that data and try to translate it into productive material for the studios. And the studios listened and they started to put in how they read scripts, how they reviewed things. We talked to unions um, and and all sorts of places. So I was doing that work because it gave me the flexibility to be a mom. Then I started doing some production work. I had my own little production company. And then we moved to North Carolina. <laughs> Which I assume was Stop. not a hub of film production at that well, point, Well, actually, right? I mean, North Carolina has always been in the top five oh, as okay. a state because, you know, there's a studio out in Wilmington that people shoot at and in, and it's a pretty good little hub in the south so homeland shot there for a while and some other major tv shows um so actually it's not bad that was not where we were living though and i really did want to stay a mom Mm -hmm. so my husband was running the theater um on the campus of unc chapel hill which is where he had gone to school he's tar hill and um i was flying back and forth to la i was still working out of la and just kind of going back and forth being a mom and then full frame happened 
did you start that or did it exist? No, no. It existed before you. Okay. Full Frame was founded by Nancy Bursky, who is a pretty well-known filmmaker now. Um, she made The Loving Story. She made The Rape of Recy Taylor, a pretty important documentary filmmaker. Before that, she was at the New York Times. She had won a Pulitzer Prize being a photo editor at the New York Times. So she was not a nobody, but she founded Full Frame. And I came there after her when it was about 15 years old. So very, very similar to the DNA at Film Streams. We'll get there. We'll get to that. I want to hear about Full Frame and how you sort of, I don't know. I don't want to say made it in your own image necessarily, but you made it your own thing, right? Yeah. um, it, It was such a great 10 years. It was such a great ride. When I came to Full Frame, it was after the 08 crash. So they were about a quarter million dollars in debt. Uh, There were a lot of people in Durham that didn't even know. They were like, oh, isn't that sort of a New York thing that just happens here? Like, it was just disconnected from its community. And it needed a little bit of love. And I just kind of got in there and dove in and hadn't had a full-time job, you know, where I was going into an office. I guess Samantha was maybe 11 at that point. Uh, That's my daughter. Okay. And it was just a great job and getting people reengaged with it, really understanding how the festival could be more a part of the community. Mm-hmm. Durham's a great town. It's a minority majority city. So we really got more invested in the community. We started a program for young people as filmmakers, and that became nationally well known. We were talking about diversity in film before a lot of people were. We had a program called Hashtag Doc so White that garnered the attention of a lot of great filmmakers of color, black, indigenous, and people of color in the documentary field. And then we gained Oscar-worthy status, and Mm -hmm. that really also helped. I didn't do that by myself. I had a great team that I worked with, including Sadie Tillery, who eventually became the artistic director and had been working and is still working at Full Frame since she was an intern. Film festivals, it's kind of a different way of looking at things. I mean, you had skills that obviously went beyond just being a producer or being an actor or anything like that. But like, what, what does it mean to make a good film festival? Ugh. Oh, my gosh. Um, I haven't had my head there for a few months. So it's funny to like, think <laughs> back on it. I mean, you, you have to be a part of your community. And film festivals are festivals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the on the one hand, you're there to raise money for the community, right? How many people are going to stay in the hotels? How many people are eating dinner? What's the financial impact? And we measured that. So we knew how much money we were raising in tax revenue for those four days. The big thing for me was how do you get people to support an event that is only four days long? Well, you have to be a part of their lives all year. So we developed year-round programming. People built us new offices and a theater. Like, it just became um, a much bigger part of the community than it had been, more Mm. omnipresent. And we became a hub for documentary. Durham did. So the Southern Documentary Fund is there. The Center for Documentary Studies is there at Duke University. Duke University made its first MFA in its history around documentary studies. So, you know, that city became a documentary city. People started moving from California that were filmmakers to live in Durham because it was more affordable. And there are all these documentary influences around. But I would say on the national level, integrity in how you screen the films, integrity integrity in how you adjudicate those films fairly, integrity in how you care for those filmmakers. I mean, documentary filmmakers don't make any money. Still, it's still less than 1% of the of the theatrical marketplace. So you're talking about people that are mortgaging their homes, dying sometimes to make those films. You know, that's that's a responsibility that I just didn't take lightly. Well, it's weird because that's still a problem, but also we've had this sort of renaissance in documentary filmmaking, which is right. like it's it's become a lot more mainstream. Sure. In that decade you were there was probably while that was happening, right? That's exactly right. So wh- why is it that it's still such a difficult thing to make any money from? Well, I think because – so a lot of documentary filmmakers are not in the union. That's one. They're a part of the Producers Guild, but it's expensive to be a member of the DGA, which is the best union, I would say. Well, best is a harsh word the most protective union of its members in the entertainment industry on that side of the camera. So a lot of the documentary filmmakers are not there. It's also, um, as you see the rise of all this content, it's a lot of the bigger companies are, they're going out and hiring the filmmaker. They're not acquiring the work. So in the last couple of years, what you're seeing is instead of the filmmaker making the work and then you go to Sundance and somebody buys it, and that's still happening. By and large, what is happening is, is, you know, 
Netflix and Amazon and all those folks, they're looking out and going, well, we want to make these films that we think will sell well, and we're going to go hire these great filmmakers to make them. But, you know, gun for hire on a documentary is not the same as a narrative film. The budgets aren't as high. Um, I, I would imagine that the money coming back isn't as high. But there's also no, um, there's no accountability yet. So I don't have to tell you how many times your film has been streamed or by how long. Hmm. I can just pay you, right? It's not mandated by law that you know that. So there's, there's some FCC stuff in there. It's, it's just the wild, wild west. But part of what attracts you then is just that almost every documentary is a passion project. I would say, okay, a couple of things. There are six different types of documentary. The type that most people know is like a biodoc or they're not looking at the breadth of what documentary film offers. And a festival can do that. And we can draw those films into the public eye and lift them up so that they draw that attention. That's number one. We're also looking at short form documentary, which is an incredibly creative area, <laughs> animated documentary. I mean, just it's just like the doors flew open on documentary. And that's a good thing for the art form, okay? But we're looking at it as an art form at a festival. We're trying to draw art and commerce together a little bit in the festival world. Um, I, think, I think if you went to Durham, the average person that goes to full frame knows a lot more about documentary because they go to full frame, mm -hmm. right? They're sitting in those conversations with the filmmakers and they're listening to how, you know, to everybody talk. They're sitting next to them at lunch and like just having a conversation going, oh my God, I can't believe I was just talking to Steve James or D.A. Pennebaker, right? So a festival affords that. You're bringing all these great people together, almost like a it's almost like a convention for those filmmakers, right? Mm -hmm. It's a place for them to all come together and be with one another in a really low-key way. And that's outside of the market-driven festivals where I have to go sell my film. So if I'm going to Sundance, it's very expensive. Mm -hmm. It should be, right? But I have to go with a crew. I've got to go with like a publicist and an agent and all these people to sell my film. That's true at Tribeca, that's true at South By, and that's true at Sundance. It's the regional festivals like the regional art houses, and here's where the connective tissue is, that gets the, that work in the way it should be seen to our communities and become the communal campfires where we have these important discussions. So whether it's documentary or narrative, it's the art house, it's the festival that allows that touching between our community and the film world in a way that you're just not going to find it in your local multiplex. You're just not. Did, I mean, have you ever had that itch, though, to go back and make another one, to make a documentary or narrative feature? Not recently. I really like supporting and trumpeting and, and you know, getting under the, under the wings and lifting them up. I really feel like that's where I've been better suited. Um, but it's a very similar skill set, running an art house or running a festival to being a producer. All you're doing is lighting fires and putting fires out <laughs> all yeah. the time. Yeah, and a lot of stress, I imagine. Like a lot both. of stress, a lot of fundraising. Yeah, you know, getting the money, um, making the ends meet, and making sure everybody's you know working on task in a meaningful way for for the programming. I mean, the team here and the team that I ran before knows that I always say we work in service to the programming. It doesn't mean that we work in service to the artistic director. It means we're working in service to the film. What's the best venue for that film? Is it should it be in the smaller house? Should it be in the bigger house? You know, in a festival, you're even talking about what day should it be on? What time of the day would it play best? You know, what audience is going to come to that? Is it going to dissipate in the big house? Does it need the intimacy of a smaller house? You're really thinking all those questions through. Mm -hmm. Did you get to a point where you were ready to broaden the types of movies you're dealing with? Like coming to film streams, obviously, is a broader yeah. market. Yeah. Did you feel that or was it something where film streams opened up and it was like, all right, this is a new challenge and I want to see how it goes? I would say it's a combination of both. I think that, um, first of all, my husband is still in Minneapolis. Okay. And so the proximity to be able to, you know, fly home in 40 minutes is real hmm. um, as opposed to working in North Carolina and living in Minnesota, which was harder. Um, and I think it was harder for everybody, but I'd been doing it for so long it made sense and they asked me to stay and I did. I, I did miss narrative film. I miss the discussions about it. Um, and I love being with the Film Streams crew because you could just talk. I mean, we, I just love talking about movies and they love talking about movies and we all love movies and mm -hmm. it's just a lot of fun. 
Well, yeah, so it came up, and I mean, was it a, was it a difficult decision? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to get too far into it, but there were other choices, and, you know, making making which choice I wanted to make or deciding which choice it was going to be right mm-hmm. um, was difficult. And at the same time, it really wasn't that difficult because if you look at film streams, if you look at how it's pulled together, if, you know, even even the budget of film streams, the way it's put together is with such love and such care. You can feel how much the people who are members of film streams love it. Mm-hmm. Just in in the paperwork even. And the team loves it. You know, there's just a lot of care. Um, this is also a film-going community, and that's a big deal. Like, the fact that the organization owns its building buildings outright, the fact that Omaha came and said, we all grew up and we love the Dundee Theater and we want to renovate it, that's special. And that doesn't exist in the Twin Cities, and it doesn't exist in Durham. See, that's something – it's hard for me to relate to that one way or another because I, I grew up in Omaha. And so, like, I did grow up with the Dundee was a big deal. Right. Uh, I loved – I mean, just the repertory element of, like, you'd have the midnight screens at the Dundee before film streams. But then as film streams came about, I know I told Rachel Jacobson when I interviewed her, which I think it kind of changed the way I watched movies. I'd always been sort of a film buff. But, like, I'm not just going to wander into, like, the Apu trilogy on my own, you know. <laughs> So just seeing some of that stuff and being exposed to it in addition to having the ability to see some of those movies really impacted me. And I don't know what it's like to not grow up in Omaha with that. It's, right. not, it's not a thing everywhere. <laughs> right. No, it's not. So look, you can look at it this way. So if you were to look at the Twin Cities, the Twin Cities, where my husband lives and works, um, second largest per capita giving to the arts outside of New York. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> okay. So that's true. That just is. There are 80 working theaters, for example, not movie theaters, theater theaters in the Twin Cities. Actors can live and work in the Twin Cities and make a living, right, outside of New York, outside of L.A., unheard of in any other community. They have a great opera like we do here. They have a great, uh, really great symphony. Um, The sum total of money invested in film in the Twin Cities is about five to seven million dollars. Okay. That's not a lot of money, Right. When you look at an organization, if you look at the uh, if you look at Omaha, r- not right now because they're closed. You have two Alamo draft houses. You have an independently owned multiplex, and then you have the other multiplexes, and then you have two working art houses under film streams. That means a lot of people are going to the movies, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that you have about three thousand members at film streams means that you have people that care enough, like you who want to be situated in the language of film to watch it more with more interest, to watch it and receive it in a bigger, broader way. So if you were to go to Durham, North Carolina, again, you have an audience who leans into nonfiction because Full Frame was there giving them context. The Southern Documentary Fund is there giving them context. It's a city that loves documentary film. That didn't just, like, happen. It had to be that the organization situated themselves for the community and the community turned on to it, right? I think Omaha, like Durham, one of the other connective tissues is being university cities, right? Where you have these great universities that are very much a part of the fabric of the city. So you just have a lot of people that want to lean in and have that context and buy local. I'm talking today with Deirdre Hodge, Executive Director of Film Streams. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Post with the hashtag Riverside Chats. We'll continue my conversation with Deirdre Hodge after this break. Hello? Wanna be a munchie boy? Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesis. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we yeah, choose. Yeah. It sounds like haha, bro. Check out Munchy Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. 
And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Deirdre Hodge took on the role of Filmstream's executive director earlier this year. We're talking about her relationship to the film industry and her vision for Filmstream's as a hub of Omaha's culture going forward. Here's the rest of our conversation. It's got to be kind of like a weird thing because you've got the stereotypes of Nebraska and Omaha. You don't think of it as like an especially artsy population unless you've maybe lived here and been exposed to it. But coming to Nebraska, it's odd to me that there's this uh, this appreciation of film that film streams has sort of helped foster. Uh, but it's not like it's a big filmmaking hub here. You know, no, we were talking about not. that. Why, why do you think that is? I can't tell you. I do think that um, state by state, there's been a real gutting of film offices. And if you, you know, if you don't give the taxes and the tax rebates to the filmmakers, they're not going to come. So that's just true. That's true, whatever state you're in. And, um, you know, I, I, again, if you don't have a rebate system that is competitive, why would I come film here? It's too expensive. So it, it really has to do with state legislatures more than anything else. And Omaha's not alone. Nebraska's not alone in that. But then again, Nebraska has that light. You get out there in those hills, you know, Chloe Zhao won an Academy Award. She knew. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I hope we'll see some more because, you know, it's sort of like you've got the shadow of Alexander Payne over Omaha filmmaking specifically, right? And it seems like that's a lot more of a complicated legacy right now than it has been. But just people bringing a different perspective, like Chloe Zhao obviously has a very different way of filming Nebraska than Alexander Payne did. And so just... I don't know. I mean, do you see film streams as being something that can foster some of that or at least a, an avenue? Because, I mean, there's a lot of people making micro-budget, no-budget movies here. Mm-hmm. And there have been some film festivals that have tried to give some voice to that. Film streams has not really geared itself for, like, a market of that type of content. You know, like, there's the Filmmaker Showcase, but that's different than, like, there was the Prairie Lights Film Festival in Grand Island where it would be a whole weekend of just Nebraska-made movies. And right. And they're made with no money, so the quality is going to vary a lot just based on what people were able to throw together. But, right. I mean, does film streams have a future sort of trying to, you know, be more involved in the whatever level of Omaha, Nebraska filmmaking that there is? Well, I mean, there's only so much you can tug at a mission. That's not what the mission statement says. And I didn't write the mission statement. So, you know, to a certain extent, I'm a gun for hire. It's not my idea. The mission is about informing Omaha through the art of film. That doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean we can't support the filmmaking community, but it's not right in line with the mission. So even like the kind of filmmaking camp that we had at Full Frame, that was in line with mission at that organization for those teenagers and, and for documentary in particular, which had a problem with diversity. In, and again, I was in a minority-majority city. That was not a hard thing to do. And there are a lot of wonderful young people now who are grown up and working in Atlanta and other really big film cities who went through that program. It's not in our mission. So it would, it would demand um, a real allocation, reallocation of resources for us to do it. Um, you know, we are a place, though, where people get to come and talk about film, but it's about curating film, watching it properly. It's not about making film. Okay. So let's talk about the curation then. So what is your approach to curating film for Omaha? Well, actually, it's Dr. Diana Martinez's job as our artistic director. My job is to support her. I think she is our secret sauce, our secret weapon, and I, I want more people to know who she is. I don't know anybody, and I've been doing this a long time, I don't know anybody at the organizations that I've mentioned before who have a PhD in film. She does. Mm -hmm. She really does. Mm -hmm. So this is somebody who has a broad palette, understands the work, um, and she's curating for Omaha. So she's not just like looking and saying, well, this was a great film that played in New York. She's saying, no, no, let's show Ailey. Let's show Annette. Let, you know, she understands our community, so she's choosing those films and bringing them into Omaha for this community. And that's really important. So my role is not to curate. My role is to support the curator, right? Because mm-hmm. she's the artistic director. And I, I'm, that was, I, I have to be frank, part of why it came was Diana. Because, I mean, have you listened to her podcast and knew who she was? I listened to her podcast, but I really looked at how, you know, what she was curating, what she had written. 
um, just getting to know her voice a little bit. And, mm-hmm. you know, she moved up to artistic director like right before the pandemic hit. Yeah. So I'm excited um, to see more of what she does because I don't think we've gotten to see it all. I think there's so much more for her to do. I want to unleash her nationally. You know, I want to put her in a conversation with some national voices I know and listen to what she has to say. I just think, you know, if you listen to her three-part podcast on Hattie McDaniel, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm like sitting home crying at this. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I know, I know all this, but she's just very, very good at how she situates it, tells us that story and, um, in particular, I would say it's what she's choosing for us to all see in Omaha, why she feels those are the right films for us to see. Um, and they're all new releases, you know, that she's choosing that way. And then the rep series and what is she looking back at and why? Um, I do think under Diana you're going to see a film, a film forward, a film first kind of thrust where we're really looking at the quality of the filmmaking to match the issue that we want to talk about. Um, and that's something she and I have just started talking about. I've been here such a short period of time. <laughs> I'm just getting started. Yeah, well, I mean, but, so I know you, you, Diana maybe makes the call on a lot of these things, but are, don't you just like you know you're watching Turner Classic movies and something comes on and you're like, oh, we should do a we should do a repertory series on that person. Like, does, sure, does that I, happen? I, I, I do mean, throw ideas at her. Okay, but I also, and this was true in my old job, I I will not insist on an idea. I think it has to be a collaborative decision. Um, so. You know, I've always said, and I, I said this of my old artistic director as well, my job is there to have her back when she has questions, to give her courage when she wants it, and to also really be the voice of devil's advocate when I think it's necessary. But in the end, it's the artistic director's decision and should be. Um, I believe that fervently. And again, coming from a nonfiction world where, you know, maybe you have a sponsor who's on the opposite side of an, a film you're going to show – that was a really powerful position to be in, to say, yeah, go ahead, show it. Mm-hmm. I believe in you. I got you. I got your back. I love repertory series personally. I think they yeah. – I don't know. They're the ones – I mean, I, obviously, I will, I will see the new stuff no matter what usually because I, I just – I'm obsessed with movies to begin with. But, yeah, like the – I talked about Apu. There was an Altman retrospective that they did, and that sure. one just rewired my brain. I oh, my God. Recovered. Great, great filmmaker. <laughs> so, I mean, do you have – are there uh, different filmmakers you think deserve repertories for Omaha? I mean, outside of – you know, Diana maybe will have – she'll have her say, but who are some of the ones you think we Oh, should I don't maybe... want to give anything away. Oh. No, I, got, I have some ideas and I don't want to give them away. Off the um, record, will you tell me some? Well, I can tell you fun things that we've <laughs> talked about. Like we were we were just talking about like why are vampires such a big deal in film? Like the breadth of film for so long, like since the birth of film, vampires have been like this subject matter. And I'm like, should we look at that? Like that would be kind of fun to look at. Like vampires from the very early Nosferatu all the way to, you know, the hunger and then you can bring it all the way up to modern day I mean nobody's tired of interview with a vampire they're going to go make a series out of it I was like my god didn't they just make a film five minutes ago but again it's been like a fascination um, the fascination of retelling certain stories over and over again in film like one of the things that I was recently reading about um, It's a Wonderful Life is a storyline we all know and we've seen it repeated over and over again yet that film's not that old when you think about it. And that was the very first telling of that story mm-hmm. of what if you died? What if you weren't here tomorrow? Right? And mm-hmm. how, like, everybody looked back on that and retells that story. And that was a failed film at the time. So I don't know. I find, I find the cultural touchstone of film, of cinema, so important, particularly because it's so quintessentially American. Like, what I love to do is I'll love to go into a room of people and I'll say – how many of you have had your life changed by a piece of dance that you've seen? And maybe a couple of hands go up. Or by a piece of art hanging on a wall, maybe a few more hands. Symphony, a couple more hands. How many of you have had your life changed watching a movie? In the United States, almost everybody's going to raise their hand. And I don't care if it was just like E.T. when you were a kid. You remember a moment where you were rocked to the core in one way or another watching a movie. And watching a movie in a movie theater with other people, where you can hear a pin drop, or you hear other people laugh, or you can hear someone's breath of the person next to you. That experience is ancient. 
it's the storytelling again of the communal campfire that we all gather around to hear those stories again and again and again, even if we kind of suspect that we know what the ending is, right? Mm -hmm. We want to gather as a tribe together to hear those stories. And that's certainly clear right now because we're full. We have a lot of people coming to the movies yeah. since we reopened. You think there's something uniquely American about that? I do. What is it? Well, I think it's uniquely American around film, right? Okay. Like, I mean, if you go to Europe and you go to the opera, it's packed. And, you know, they grew up going to the opera. They grew up not thinking that there was a barrier to entry. What I think we could do a better job of in certain towns, certainly, and maybe here as well, is how do we make our doors more porous? How do we make people from other communities inside of Omaha feel welcome and not like, well, that's an art house. I won't understand the film. Or maybe that's just not for me. Or I don't know. How do people act in the art house? And understand that, you know, no, you just get your popcorn and come in and sit down and wear blue jeans and listen. Um, there's also, we have certain transit issues here. Like, you know, it's really easy to go up and down Dodge Street one way, but if you're coming from the south part of the city or the north part of the city, it's not particularly easy to get to us. So maybe we need to get out of the building and go to other communities inside of Omaha with those films. And there's new technology that allows us to do that. So it's something I'm early, early days looking at. Could we do that? Well, what is it that Americans, like, why do they have a specific relationship with film that's not the case in Europe? I don't know, but, you know... I'm, I'm really not sure. Like, I'm not going to give you a studious answer, but okay, right. when I think about the um, – it's so funny. I just rescreened a film called The Gray Fox, okay. which is a true story about this guy who – he robbed uh, stagecoaches, and he went away to jail, and when he came out, there were trains. And so he became a train robber. And it's a true story. It was made in Canada. And in the film, there is um, a group of men watching the newsreels. And so they're watching those newsreels in the cinema. And so this is what, early, late 1800s, early 1900s? Okay. It's got to be 1800s. And at one point, there's a train robbery in the newsreel. And somebody shoots a gun in the audience watching the newsreel. And like the guy's playing the piano to the newsreel and the whole nine yards. And that just feels like our country, right? <laughs> like sure, yeah. A, shooting the gun in the air in the middle of the cinema, but also just this idea of that's how we receive our information. We're a technological country because we're a young country. So I think storytelling through technology is something second nature. Do you feel like the, the streaming revolution is a threat at all to the theatrical experience? Yeah. No? No, I don't. I mean, why? why not? Well, first of all, this is such a long, my God, this is such a deep topic that we can barely scratch the surface of. I think, first of all, it's changing, right? It's, even as we sit here and talk about it, it's changing. The deals and how they're made are changing. I think there's a, a guy that writes a blog I love, uh, a guy named Brian Newman, um, who actually talked about us recently in his newsletter. I think that streaming is a new way of us getting more content out to more people. Yes. But I also think what people crave is curation. Yeah. So I go to Netflix and I'm like, I don't know what to watch. There's so much content. I don't know what I want to see. What, how are you going to tell what you want to see? Well, maybe there's a way for you to go to Dr. Diana Martinez at Filmstreams and figure out what you want to see online versus what you want to see in a house. Right. There's certain films that I'd be willing to watch online. But I'm not going to – I'm going to refuse to watch them if I could see them in a cinema, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think the other thing is, is that the financial model of a cinema is broken. But the art house cinema model is not. Okay. That's what's the difference? A, I'll tell you. The difference is, is that the reason why AMC is in bankruptcy is they can't pay for themselves with the price of your ticket and your popcorn. The secret is neither can an art house. So art houses have memberships. A healthy art house has a balance of earned and unearned revenue, of our earned revenue, so our tickets and our popcorn, essentially, is 30% of our revenue. The other part is 70%, and that comes from donations and grants and foundations. Omaha gets that. They, they support us. So without that, you wouldn't have the art house. But that's the same thing in live theater. That's the same thing in a museum. That's the same thing in the symphony. You're not going to pay those musicians who are union guys that get paid every 15 minutes based on the ticket price. Otherwise, I'd have to be charging you what it costs to go to the opera. 
do you want to pay $35 to go to the movies? Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, I'm more of a movie freak, so I'm the wrong person to ask that question because I'll, I'll like I remember uh, like what Turner Classic Movies does those things. What do they call them? The Fathom events, and they're like twelve dollars uh-huh. versus. Everybody. They always were a little more, but I was like, yeah, I don't know, this will be fun even if I didn't have the money. So. Well, you know, like Avatar when it came out, and how are you going to watch it on what screen? Are you going to pay to go? You know, yeah. and we did. I ponied it up. I yeah. wanted to go see it. You know, in the right way. So yeah, um, but but in by and large, for us mm-hmm. to change that content out as fast as we do. Yeah, you have to have that membership, just like a museum has a membership, to support and and be your underpinning so that you can still operate in the proper way. And actually, you're not coming into, you know, a place with gum on the floor and, you know, a really bad print and, you know, bad projection on top of that. You're coming into a place where you can see the film the way it's meant to be seen and heard. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Deirdre Hodge, Executive Director of Film Streams. So what are some of the things that you see then as you sort of – you are just taking over film streams? Uh, taking over sounds like you like a military strike or something. Yes, it's not at all. Sorry. You've taken on the opportunity. Uh, yes. And so just like with the film festival that you did before, uh, Full Frame, how is film streams – how do you see it sort of shifting from here as uh, sort of in your vision? I think more people knowing about us outside of Omaha is one of my goals. It's a really special place. And I think, you know, the way people think of the Bellacourt or the Paris, there's certain, like, you know, storied movie movie houses um, that are known. I think we very easily can do that, and that's one of my goals. I think having Diana's curation reach outside of Omaha and people knowing who she is. I think branding our pedagogical approach on how to watch film. She, I mean, she teaches an adult course called Courses on how to watch film. I'm going to be the first one there. I can't wait Till she does the next courses. I'm like, oh, my God, I am there with bells on, right? Like, you're a movie fan like me. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that just sounds like cake, yeah. right? I mean, like, I was just like, you, uh, I, please, you know, I, I'm thrilled to go to that. I want more people to know about that, how, how to watch a film. Um, my husband used to joke because he runs the Guthrie. He used to joke about, like, I should write a book on how to watch plays. And I think that's a lot of what we're talking about is, you know, w- what are you seeing? Like, Understanding what you're seeing, understanding the director's choices, understanding that visual language, understanding the history behind it. You know, who who was that filmmaker's influences? Can you see that in this filmmaking? What about the composition with, of what you're looking at? And I'm just talking about vision now. I'm not even talking about sound, right? Mm-hmm. Which we started with. with yeah, Raging Bull. Raging Bull. Oh, my God, the sound in that. I talked about that with the Green Knight to um, the team after I saw it. I was like, just the foley work in yeah. that film is so intense, like little fox's feet. Yeah, I could just. Hear I love that fox. Feet. Wasn't oh that fox the most God. adorable thing? Awesome, <laughs> awesome. I love that film. Yeah, I liked it too. Um, so, well, so how to watch a movie? I mean, one of the things you fight right now is there's all of these elements of how to intentionally watch a movie, how to get all those layers, but also just you have to look up from the phone sometimes too, right? So that's part of it. I know film streams doesn't have that much of a problem as some of the. Uh, no. I'd gone to other, you know, more mainstream uh, theaters where people are all on, sort of on their phones, and it's right. just sort of like a we're all sort of just multitasking, and there's a movie on, and it's kind of just like a living room. So, I mean, to, to get people to not have that mentality, especially young people, seems like something that maybe they do need that push, right? They I do think need it to has talk. to do with the quality of the content that you're watching. And I just – I don't see it in our theaters. Um, I, again, I was there just the other night and half the audience was way younger than I was for The Green Knight and I didn't see anybody on their phones. I mean, look, the most radical act you can do is turn off your phone and spend 90 minutes listening to somebody else's story. That's the most radical act you could do right now. And frankly, probably something we all need. And I think that's what the cinema offers is that opportunity. And, you know, again, I don't know how other movie houses do it. I do a few of them I know from going to festivals in other countries. When the house goes to half, you and I, since we were kids, are cued to be quiet, right? Mm -hmm. We were really little. We might go, ooh, because it's getting dark, right, in the auditorium at school. But we're cued to quieten down. It's a signal to us shut down, focus forward, and look at the light on the screen. And to me, that focus is nothing short of holy. You know, it's a holy place. And there's a reason why theater and religion are inextricably tied in the Western canon from the Greeks. So that focus still exists in the art house. And again, I think if Diana's put it on the screen, you're probably not on your phone. So what are some of the movies you've watched lately other than The Green Knight that you liked? (laughs) Oh, God, that's always such a loaded question. 
I watch so much content all the time. It's like literally my mind is blank because I watch so much all the time. You know, I, a lot of the films I'm t- uh, that I watched this year, of course, were on the festival circuit. Mm-hmm. So they're not necessarily films we would have here. But nonfiction-wise, I think Lucy Walker's most recent film, which just got released on the coast, um, which is Bring Your Own Brigade, is, is a film I really liked a lot. Mayor, which I know is playing, now it's streaming, but it was in theaters and was up for the Academy Award. And I'm trying to remember what was the one that we just saw. I, I, oh, Summer of Soul. Oh, my God. I loved it so much. <laughs> See, this was kind of just a trick to get you to recommend some movies. I'm so me, sorry. So. Summer of Soul was awesome. <laughs> I liked In the Heights, too. Roadrunner is obviously awesome. You know, this is the real key. Like, one of our board members asked me to go with she and her husband to Roadrunner, and I hadn't seen it yet. And I come running in. There is no place to park. Now, we're at reduced capacity right now. We're Mm -hmm. at 50% capacity for safety reasons. We played opening weekend over 200% higher than the national per screen average. And when I came in, you could just feel it. Like, the whole place was a buzz. It was just so excited to see the film. So excited to, like, have that conversation afterward about, like, did you know where the AI was? Did it bother you? What do you think? And everybody cried. No, but I can tell you, when I went for The Green Knight and we showed our trailers, like, you could hear a pin drop when the trailer came on for Annette. Yeah. And I am so stoked to see that. <laughs> and I am stoked to see it on our screen. I mean, Annette, I mean, you know, big gonzo out of con. Yeah. Adam Driver. Sparks. Sparks. I mean, oh, brain just ready to receive. I'm so excited to see that film. Yeah. So, yeah. Ailey, of course, which is playing, which is right up my alley, about Alvin Ailey. And, and getting the Ruth back open, getting the Ruth Sokoloff open in the next couple of weeks. That's another big lift that we all have right now. Well, I'm excited about all of this. I'm glad I got to know you and some movie recommendations. Thank you so much for having me here. Yes. Thank you for being here. I really Thanks appreciate so it. And I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of movies at film streams in the okay. future. Okay. I'll, I'll hold you to it. <laughs> Thank you. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.